tell you about Sayyida al-Hura, a 16th century Moroccan noble who rose to govern an entire city-state in her own right, assembling a colossal army of pirates as she did so to terrorise the Western Mediterranean. Hers is an incredible story. Uh, she's one of the original pirate queens long before the likes of Qingxi, episode 98, get across it. But uh, before we get to her story, let's set the scene. We begin our story in the uh, in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, uh, when European nations like Portugal had established uh, sea-based trade routes over to the east, India and beyond, rather than uh, doing what they had done previously, going overland across North Africa. Now, this greatly weakened the economic position of northern African regions like Morocco, uh, as their, their merchants, who had been middlemen, essentially, for European trade, were now out of a job. And uh, things only got worse from there for, uh, for the powers that ruled Mediterranean Africa, uh, because throughout the late 15th century, European powers like the Spanish, and again, the Portuguese, invaded and conquered many coastal cities along the North African coastline. And all of this is happening uh, with a, on top of all this, there is a steady stream of Andalusian Muslim refugees who are fleeing the results of the Spanish Reconquista. They're relocating to Northern Africa as, as Christians reclaimed the, uh, the Iberian Peninsula. So overall, a pretty grim situation for those living in regions like Morocco. They've been economically and politically weakened. They've been straight up invaded here here and there as well. And, uh, and on top of that, they've, they've also got to deal with what is essentially just a humanitarian crisis as all these refugees seek to return to uh, more strongly held Islamic lands on the other side of the Mediterranean, which, uh, which caused a, a whole bunch of different problems. So this is the backdrop against which the story of Sayyida al-Hura plays out, because her family were amongst the Andalusian refugees that fled the Iberian Peninsula as the Spanish reconquered it. Al-Hura, she was born uh, sometime between 1485 and 1495 into a noble Islamic family that had, prior to the Reconquista, lived in the city of Granada. Uh, and they'd been forced to flee, as we'll talk about in a second. But uh, when it comes to Sayyida al-Hura herself... Um, that wasn't actually her name. Uh, that was actually a title that she was given later on in her career. She was born Lala Aicha bint Ali ibn Rashid al-Alami, but uh, history has instead come to know her as Sayyida al-Hura, which is a title that means noble lady who is free and independent, which, as you will find out very soon, is very fitting. We'll, uh, we'll come to that. Anyway. Alora, she uh, she may have been born before or during or perhaps after her parents flight across the Mediterranean. And I mean flight in the sense that they were fleeing, not flying. We're uh, quite a long way away from that, as episode 247 will tell you. History of flight, get across it. Anyway, whatever the case, um, she and her family, they were refugees in Northern Africa, in Morocco. And uh, they would have had a very tough time of it to begin with, at least. Because on the other side of the Mediterranean... All these Andalusian refugees that were fleeing Iberia, they were foreigners. They were newcomers to the ruling Wadisid dynasty. Um, in many cases, they were treated with suspicion and hostility. They may have been linked to this region historically, culturally, uh, from a religious standpoint. You know, they're returning to an area that is a, a, a much safer place for, for Muslims to live. But all the same, these Andalusians weren't welcomed with open arms in all cases by, by the Berbers and the other peoples who lived uh, in, in Northern Africa at the time. And so as a result, many Andalusians looked to establish themselves in 
new communities. And it was one such community that Alhura became very famously associated with. Because in the years around the time that Alhura and her family fled, another Andalusian refugee named Abu al-Hassan Ali al-Mandri had been given permission by the Wadisids to rebuild the ruined port city of Tetuan. Tetuan had been raised by the Spanish and then again by the Portuguese during the 15th century, and it had laid in ruin ever since. But al-Mandri, he saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity to rebuild the city and establish a community for Andalusians uh, that were fleeing the Spanish. And that's just what he did. He rebuilt this city and it grew and it grew, uh, thanks to refugees like Alhura's family who moved there, but also because local Berbers and the like also ended up moving there too, recognising a good thing when they saw one, because Tetuan, it ended up flourishing. It flourished to the point that it essentially became a semi-autonomous city-state, while I guess technically under the authority of the Wadisid dynasty, um, it became a very important, very powerful city in its own right. Now, why is this, you may wonder? How has this half-ruined city turned things around and, and ended up becoming what was essentially a regional power? Well, it was because after Tetuan was rebuilt, it was the only port in Morocco. It was the only port in Morocco that wasn't under the control of the, of the invading Spanish and Portuguese, who, you'll remember, had conquered most of the surrounding coastlines and captured most of the cities that dotted their way along the Mediterranean and out into the Atlantic as well. So Al-Mandri did very well indeed with re-establishing Tetuan, you have to agree. And happily, Al-Hura and her family, they were able to settle down there into a life of relative stability and security after their time fleeing Granada. And it was in Tetuan that, uh, that Al-Hura received an excellent education as she grew up, as you would expect for a young noblewoman, uh, and proved herself to be very cluey indeed. She was a very intelligent young woman. Um, but also, as you would expect for a young noblewoman, uh, she had a marriage arranged for her uh, to a prominent Tetuan nobleman, who, you may wonder, none other than the grandson of Abu al-Hassan Ali al-Mandri, the bloke who had rebuilt Tetuan from the ground up, although it may have been his nephew. We're not sure about that. In any case, uh, a relative, no matter how you slice it, definitely a, a descendant in some form or other of the great al-Mandri. And this is a terrific match for Alhura and indeed her family as the young Al-Mandri, right, the grandson or potentially the nephew, he was now the ruler of the city. A very powerful bloke indeed. They got married in 1510. Um, although I, I realised I, I just described him as young, um, young in the sense that he's younger than his grandfather slash uncle, not young in the sense that he didn't have many years on him. He he was not a young bloke by any means. He was 30 years older than Alhura, a bit of, a, a bit of, a bit of the old May-December romance there. But in any case, age difference aside, this marriage uh, is very, very good for a young Alhura. Uh, makes her the wife of the governor of Tetuan. Um, and let me tell you, she didn't stay on the sidelines as well. She got stuck into politics with both bloody hands. She more or less became the deputy governor of Tetuan as she went about with her husband, taking part into, in the day-to-day in -day governance of the city. And then on top of this, whenever her husband left Tetuan for any reason whatsoever... Alhura was usually just left in charge, as a matter of course, and she acquitted herself very well in doing so. She really had a head for politics, which set her in very good stead indeed for what happened in 1515. Al-Mandri died. He's an old fart, don't forget. While Alhura, she's in her prime, mate. She is a young woman with the world at her feet, or at the very least with Tetuan at her feet. Uh, check this out, because Alhura had so thoroughly established herself as part of the day-to-day -day governance of the city. Um, and also because she was, by all accounts, 
well-educated, sharply intelligent, and fiercely independent, she transitioned into the position of governor of Tetuan without any issues at all. Her people readily accepted her as their leader, despite the prevailing sexist attitudes of the day that women weren't fit to lead, um, because she had so thoroughly proven her capabilities. And I'll tell you this, it was a bloody good thing for Tetuan that she stuck around because the city prospered like never before under her leadership. And the main reason for this is a very exciting one indeed. Long before the likes of Calico, Jack or Blackbeard were terrorising the Caribbean, episodes 49 and 274 get across them, Saida al Hura was terrorising the Mediterranean with her fleets of Barbary Corsairs. Morocco didn't have any ships, right? Their, their ports had been captured by the Spanish and the Portuguese, as I said. Well, well sorry, all but one, right? Tetuan, which is now under the control of al Hura. So she has the only Islamic-controlled port town for miles around. Realising the opportunity that this provided her, al Hura went ahead and actively invited pirates from across the Mediterranean to headquarter themselves in her city. Now, just think about this, right? Ordinarily, inviting lawless pirates to operate in your waters, let alone your port, this is a recipe, this is a recipe for disaster, mate. They, they're going to go after your ships. They're going to attack your town. But here's the thing. Morocco didn't have any ships to attack. The only ships that these pirates could go after were European ones. So with this in mind, al contacted notable Barbary Corsairs, the name given to the predominantly Islamic pirates and privateers that operated off the Barbary coast, that is to say the, the coast of North Africa. She gets in touch with these blokes, some of whom had actively aided Muslim refugees fleeing Andalusia, and she, advi- she invited them all to Tetuan to use it as a base of operations. And of course, as you would imagine, many eagerly accepted. No longer did they have to live life on the run from the authorities. And as soon as they did, as soon as they showed up in port, things changed for them enormously. Because for one, al began to organise these ragtag, loosely organised pirate ships and their crews into a proper regimented fleet. She brought military structure and organisation to these corsairs, coordinating the attacks that they made on Spanish and Portuguese shipping. She sent them after the Christians for a few reasons. Firstly, Portugal and Spain were doing very well for themselves uh, with naval trade, as you might expect with their new sea trade routes. Uh, so there was plenty of valuable plunder to be won. But secondly, she sent them off to take prisoners so as to provide political leverage and to avoid repercussions from the European powers for her depredations. She could use these prisoners essentially as hostages to make sure that the, that the Spanish and, and the Portuguese didn't, didn't raise Tetuan to the ground for a third time. And thirdly, and I have to say this is more speculative than anything else, but potentially, thirdly, uh, perhaps to avenge what her family went through around the time of her birth, being exiled from their home in Granada and the pain and the suffering that that, that, that brought about, she sent her, her fleet off tit for tat to go after the Spanish and the, and the Portuguese, caused them a bit of pain and suffering as well. Whatever the case, Alhura's efforts on the sea paid enormous dividends, and her fleet was going around absolutely tearing it up, bringing a lot of wealth back into Tetuan. And this had a number of consequences. Firstly, as I've said, these raids, they, the pirates went on, they were very successful, benefiting from their new levels of organisation and discipline. They brought back all sorts of plunder and became a very formidable naval force. But this had another second effect, right? It only bolstered and entrenched Alhura's position as a successful governor. 
People were getting rich, which made them loyal to her as the architect of this success, which strengthened her position and made more people want to work for her. Not only were you going to be made very rich by coming and working for Alhora, she also had a huge fleet that would kick your ass across the Mediterranean if you tried to cross it. So Tetuan prospered thanks to this piracy, I guess. That's what we're calling it. But when you think about it, Alhora's ships... They're going toe-to-toe with European fleets. They were actually just doing the same thing, really. They're looting and plundering and pillaging. It's just that they did it with a with a national flag flying from the mast, which, you know, it makes it okay. It's not piracy then. Really, we, we, we shouldn't be calling Alhura's fleet a pirate fleet, even if that's where it originated, because it wasn't by, you know, a reasonable definition. It was an organized military force seeking to further the political interests of a governing body. In other words, it was just a navy. But interestingly, we've sort of romanticized pirates over the years to the point that thinking of it as a pirate fleet makes it seem much cooler than a boring old navy. Um, Although I think Really, the real reason that it's characterised as a pirate fleet is a lot of the literature you'll read about uh, about this woman, particularly you know from the Western hemispherical side of things, um, is comes from the standpoint of people who viewed her as a pirate. You know, it comes from European written sources who didn't consider her her navy to be a legitimate state sanctioned national military force. It was just a Bunch of pirates going around and raiding the, and the Spanish and the Portuguese. However, on the other side of things, right, Alhura and her people, they didn't consider what they were doing to be piracy. The fleet that she'd assembled was the only naval force that Morocco had at the time, and it waged a legitimate war on its enemies to the north. So while she was very readily branded a pirate by Christendom, she was seen as a, a mighty and, again, legitimate leader across the Islamic world. And this went on for decades, decades and decades. Tetuan and its fleet of Corsairs were the terror of the Western Mediterranean and made ships from Christian regions like Portugal and Spain think twice before setting sail. Her fleet would capture ships, take crews prisoner, seize loot and riches, and on top of this, launch raids on the European coastline itself. Places like Gibraltar were regularly raided, with Alhura's sailors carrying off booty and captives, bringing everything back to Tetuan. And so she was very well respected and even feared by the major European powers who couldn't afford to move against her directly because, again, her prisoners are overfull of Spanish and Portuguese hostages uh, being used to make sure, essentially, that the Christians behave themselves. So Alhura, in time, became one of the most powerful leaders in the region, even though she was only at the head of a small city-state, geographically speaking, the naval power at her fingertips was truly remarkable. So much so that in 1541, when she remarried, Alhora was poised to completely rewrite the power dynamics of the whole region. Because she got married to none other than the Watasid Sultan of Morocco, another extremely powerful leader. And this meant that Islamic forces across the region would only be made stronger as they came together to resist further European incursion. Morocco was uniting against Spain and Portugal, and Alhora could have played a huge part in this. Sadly, however, this never came to be. Because perhaps unhappy with Alhura's political moving and shaking and the loss of autonomy that this might bring to Tetuan, her own son-in-law gathered an army, attacked the city, captured the palace and overthrew her. Now, they didn't kill her, thankfully. She remained a sultan consort to her new husband, but she had lost her power base. She no longer had the power that she did before the coup. 
And then in 1549, when the Sultan died, she was essentially politically sidelined for the rest of her life, sadly. But at least she was able to live out her final years in in peace and, st- and stability rather than, you know, having been sent to an early grave. Alhura actually lived until the year 1561, when she finally died in her 60s or 70s. But what a life she lived, taking a rebuilt city and turning it into a regional powerhouse by harnessing the might of Mediterranean pirates, whipping them into shape and turning them into a formidable naval force. She certainly made her mark on history. It's clear to see one of the most powerful women in the history of the Western Islamic world and well and truly deserving of her title, Saida Alhura, noble lady who is free and independent. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 